ever get around to seeing uh, Kong Skull Island? Yeah, it was all right. Question: Which do you prefer between that and the Godzilla, the uh, Gareth Edwards? Uh, I would have to go for the Gareth Edwards Godzilla. Really? Yeah, like the timeline for this was interesting, but I don't feel like they. I don't know. It just it just felt like it really just passed, and I didn't leave a mark on me at all. John C. Riley is really the only exciting great part of the movie. Like Tom Hiddleston and Brie Larson do absolutely nothing in the movie, really. Samuel Jackson at least has some stuff going for him. John Goodman really is like a non-entry. So he doesn't like fight a ninja. No, he does nothing. He doesn't really fight a monster. I don't think he fires a single weapon. Question: Does King Kong fight a ninja? Uh, King Kong throughout the movie fights uh, a squid under the water, um, a couple of skull walkers, tiny ones, and then he fights a big one. And he also fights a platoon of uh, Vietnam-era American soldiers. But he does protect the village of humans that live on Skull Island. He's their protector. Good. So you know he's a good guy. So when they do the King Kong versus Godzilla thing, you know who to root for. Godzilla but Godzilla is the law of the mo- monster universe. Godzilla also <laughs> was a good guy in the Gareth Edwards movie because he defended everyone from the Mutos. He just didn't give a shit about people. He specifically just wanted to kill the Mutos. The people were just around. God damn it, Cody. Godzilla's a hero! I am not convinced. Hey, he could have stomped on them. He could have wiped out Ken Watanabe and all those other people, but he chose not to. He chose to wade back into the sea. He off Godzilla's back. <laughs> no, this is like the opposite of Batman. He caused a shit ton of property damage. He didn't so prevent does, any of it. So did the Avengers. It's true. And they should be held accountable. What if, okay, fucking go up to Godzilla with a bill and tell him to fucking pay up. Well, no, he's not a good guy. He would murder me. If he was a good guy, <laughs> we could do that. Godzilla's not a bad guy. He's just indifferent. He just wants to help the laws of nature. I thought you were going to say, right. make Godzilla sign the accord. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how all right, Godzilla right. versus King Kong happens. <laughs> <laughs> Look, all right, so... We've got Twitter. We can just put this out here right now. We can just ask the people. Do it. I don't know how to make a poll. Like, all I'm imagining is, like, William ask Hurt. Ask a question. What, William Hurt is in a sit-down with Godzilla and King Kong, just gigantic at a small table. How do I want to oh. phrase this? I don't, want to, I don't want to put my bias into the question. So, quick question. Is Godzilla a good dude or a giant mess of collateral damage? They have to specify which Godzilla it is, because you can't just say, oh, well... Is Godzilla in general a good dude? Because it varies from movie to movie. It's true. Very true. That's a fair point. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the first option, I'm going to say Force of Good. Second option, does anyone have any problem with me just saying uh, Sack of Shit? I like Sack, sack of Shit. That's fine. Huh. Okay. Should there be a middle got, like, or is it just one extreme or the other? No, we, we need to go complete black and white on this, because that way we don't have any um, people who are like... Uh, See, this is how good, we get to the bad. monster accords. God, the Skull well, then, Island accords. <laughs> maybe we, maybe we need the Skull Island accords if people are going to be that wishy-washy about it. Fucking oh, who who would be the Black Panther? Ghidorah. <laughs> uh, All right, we can add more choices. How long do we want to make this poll for? A day, two days, a year? Make it for a while. It's a week. Yeah, a week. Uh, I can I can set it for a week, no problem. One, two, three, uh, uh, seven days. Set. Uh, two options. I can add more. Otherwise, quick question. Is Gareth Edwards' Godzilla, hashtag before the Godzilla, 
a good dude or a giant ball of collateral damage. Having a bop crew argument. I'm going to say that's good. Tweet. I can't vote my own poll. This is bullshit. You're, no you would like be outvoted anyway because we're... I, I think all of us are on the pro-Godzilla side. Including box are office we? pulp guys. That's four to two, four no, to one. box. You can't decide for box office pulp guy. He would probably be pissed that Godzilla destroyed his house and didn't even offer to like carpenter it back up. Uh, he doesn't no, have no. a house. He'd be like box, well, box a office box pulp house. guy got off the smack because of Godzilla's intervention. It's true. Box office pulp guy is paralyzed from the neck down because Godzilla <laughs> knocked a concrete cinder block onto his neck. Got box office pulp guy doesn't know who this cheap imposter is, but he's about to start breaking some fucking legs. Box office pulp guy would like to die, but he doesn't have the motor function left to do it. Box office pulp guy is discovered as a quadriplegic. He feels exactly the same. Box office pulp guy says, let them fight. I can't one-up that, so I'm just going to start the show. <laughs> what a strange opening. <laughs> Welcome to point. box office pulp... <laughs> Damn it, Mike! You're talking over me. Welcome to Box Office Pulp, ladies and gentlemen. Am I, am I the only podcast. one recording? I'm yeah, recording. I was, I was okay. going like, to say. Yeah, I'm recording now. I've been recording for like the last hour and a half. Uh, <laughs> Jesus. Anyway, continue. Third time is the charm. Welcome to Box Office Pulp, ladies and gentlemen. Your one-stop podcast for movies, madness, and moxie. Also, Godzilla arguments. Let us know how you feel about Gareth Edwards' Godzilla. Is he a giant douchebag? I think so. Other people don't agree. Let them know they're wrong. You can get to us on Twitter. Let them fight. Anyways, I'm your host, Cody, and today I'm joined by Mike, State of the Badass Art, Napier, James, We Got Cows, Lewis, and M, Nice Night for a Walk, eh? B. Nice Night for a Walk. (laughs) I didn't do it in the good Terminator voice because I, I just can't. Anyways, on that note, death. We're all approaching it, just at different speeds. As Tom Waits would tell you, your spirit don't leave no one, your face or your name, and the wind through your bones is all that remains. And we're all going to be just dirt in the ground. So last month, we lost a legend in the cinema world. Superstar Bill Paxton, the man who took on the Predator, the T-800, and a whole pack of xenomorphs, passed away at the age of 61. If you don't know Bill Paxton, you're probably born in, like, the early 2000s. I'm assuming there's something horribly wrong with your education. His presence spiced up pretty much every film that he was in, and he gave us a long list of wonderful, memorable performances in films ranging from Edge of Tomorrow to Nightcrawler, Haywire, Titanic, Apollo 13, Twister, Tombstone, True Lies, Predator 2, Aliens, Terminator, Near Dark, and Weird Science, just to name a couple of the things he was in. Didn't even get into his TV work. So we're recording today to pay tribute to a Bob favorite by conducting the first annual Game Over Awards. Each of us has prepared a list of three memorable movie deaths, and we're going to work our way through each of them and then crown a champion. I'm laying those rules down in case I I was waiting for someone to contradict me and be like, that's not what I did at all. I made a list of favorite pizza toppings. (laughs) No, Cody, for once. We were professional. I I know that uh, you're used to us coming in and breaking the rules and starting game shows out of nowhere, but no, you can relax now. Yeah, okay, we know good. what the topic of the episode is. I, I, for once, right. we actually paid attention. 
I, I know, I know. Yeah, Usually thanks. we're rowdy about it, and we we, I know we like to disrupt other people and talk over other people, and and you guys do through everything. a lot sometimes, and it's it's really tough. And I appreciate that you're aware of it, and that's the first step towards improvement. So thank you. Listen, that time we threw out the Civil War intro will never happen again. Also, comment. Um, first annual is a misnomer. I mean, we'll do it in the future. Still a misnomer. It, it, Which is it's only supposed a, to mark the celebration of one time. It's it's a reverse celebration of the future. So this isn't the first annual. This is the reverse annual Game Over Awards. That I like. I mean, I just throw it in there because it lets people know it's an annual event. I, if you just say first, you might not know. It's going to be every year. Inaugural? Yeah, but... Yeah. The it's first inaugural has a nice sound to it. It does, first but then do you really say first game. inaugural? Could you say inaugural? Yeah. Oh. Do I have to make a Twitter poll for this too? <laughs> yes. <laughs> this is how we solve all arguments now. At box office poll. <laughs> We're desperate for you people to vote on all of our petty arguments. It's the only way we can resolve. Remember to vote. Now. Should Frank Grillo kick Cody's ass? Yes or yes? Twitter.com slash box office poll. <laughs> Promotion. Death promotion. (laughs) I don't know why we didn't get on Twitter sooner, because that's the ultimate way to defeat Cody at last. I'm sorry, Cody. All of the internet said no. (laughs) I don't know. We're getting a couple votes on my We're getting so far away from the episode. (laughs) Uh, The game over awards. So... The first nomination for the inaugural episode of the Game Over Awards. The Life Aquatic with Steve Zizzo. Ned Plimpton, played by Owen Wilson. Is that a good uh, game show voice? Can I use that in the future? I mean, it's a board show, not a game show. (laughs) That's true. Fuck. Same difference. (laughs) God damn it. God damn it. Isn't an award show just, just a game show where you play by having made a good movie that year? Pretty much. Yeah. Wow. Wow, this has got deep about award shows. Anyways, <laughs> uh, MB, I believe you haven't seen The Life Aquatic, so I'm going to request that you put on your earfo- uh, earmuffs. All right. Actually, I don't care. If you want spoilers, it's fine. I already explained that the character dies, so you've got that on your back. <laughs> <laughs> Everything from this moment on is fucking pointless. <laughs> Pretty much. I've ruined the film. So The Life Aquatic is one of my favorite films, and it's... I have an interesting history with it, because when I first saw it, I didn't know anything about Wes Anderson. I picked it up on a whim, I watched it with my family, and we ended up all just absolutely hating it. Like, he was running, my dad was just sitting there like, what the fuck is this? This is not the kind of Bill Murray movie I'm used to. And because my mom and dad were just sitting there, like, rolling their eyes at it, I wasn't having a good time with it, so I just did not enjoy the movie the first time I saw it at all. With the exception of Ned Plimpton's death, which, even though I didn't care for the rest of the movie at that time... Still had a huge impact on me. Like, it was just a sad scene. The use of the zombies, the way I feel inside, is just such a great choice. One, it just works to sell the emotion of the scene. But I really like uh, how it kind of recontextualizes the actual song and your understanding of the piece itself. I think Wes Anderson's really good at this, like the way he uses uh, Needle in the Hay for the attempted suicide in Royal Tannenbaums. You know, that song is pretty much literally about drug addiction. But the way it's used in that film, it's kind of like Richie's going through 
like an emotional di- uh, addiction. It's an unrequited love. So it makes you look at the song in a different way and tries to make something like drug addiction almost approachable to people that would never have tried heroin in their life. For this movie, though, we end up using the zombie song. And, you know, it's basically a love song about a person just trying to hide their feelings because they're not sure if the other person's going to reciprocate, which, which is essentially the movie. It's Steve not owning up to the fact that he has a grown child who loves him and comes to that realization after his son is dead and now has to live with that knowledge and kind of change his life from that point. So it's just a beautiful turning point in the movie and very tragic. And that alone sold the movie for me. I didn't like the film until that scene. And then it would stick with me. And years later, I'd return to it and realize how much I really love this movie. So I think that really speaks for how powerful this death is, where it can turn someone who just absolutely hated it into a fan over years of just nagging thoughts. And that is still one of the most shocking plot developments I can think of in, like, modern movies. Like, that is the absolute last way you expect that plot to go. Oh, exactly. You never see that coming. All of a sudden, the helicopter just malfunction and a character to die. But it doesn't feel out of place with that universe, because it opens with Steve's mentor dying in the water. So there's death around the movie, and it's kind of making points about how suddenly these people can come and go out of our lives. So it works. It's just surprising. I think it's excellent story writing. And I'm going to be perfectly honest. I think Owen Wilson died for real in that. (laughs) I think it's a a Paul McCartney situation. There's just another Owen Wilson hanging around. Luke Luke Wilson just broke his nose, dyed his hair. (laughs) I was going to say, Luke Wilson is doing like uh, a... just like a huge fan of the opera makeup kind of test thing all the time, just pretending to be his brother. It's incredible work. Double it's, like a re- it's a reverse prestige. <laughs> Honestly, okay, I, I just, it. I just want to state for the record, I did actually take off my earmuffs so I wouldn't hear the plot details of that movie. <laughs> oh, nice. Wonderful. Well done. Nice. You try. So you want us to repeat it back to you real quick or? Yeah, sure. Go yeah. ahead. I can send my notes over talking about how uh, Ned dies in a helicopter crash. <laughs> Spoilers! <laughs> Prometheus dies. <laughs> no callbacks will be here all night. <laughs> it's all callbacks, baby. All the way through. So I like how Cody started serious. Yeah, apparently that was a terrible tonal choice to begin things with. Just making Let's the rest of us look out. like fools. Or at least me. Wait, else. Yeah, speak for yourself. I'm you sorry. also have like a surprise third entry, so we have to save you for second to last. So I think that means MB is up. MB, what do you have? Alright, well, my whole thing in my approach to this was that I started to think about what exactly a great movie death is to me, because I I feel like because we're all kind of desensitized to on-screen violence or uh, on-screen death specifically, and, and we know intrinsically in our minds that it's not really real, Movie deaths really have to be rooted thematically in the story and really carry out carry itself through an arc. If it can't be that, then it has to be something that is so insanely impactful that that's one of the things that you won't be able to stop talking about whenever you stop watching the movie. That's going to be like on the top of the scale. So for me, the one that I chose was actually the death of Damien Karras in The Exorcist. And the reason I chose that is because the entire premise, the central premise of the movie, you know, it it deals with a lot of the idea of faith, but specifically it deals with the idea of Karis's faith. It deals with the idea that he's having a crisis of faith, that he's Mm -hmm. really having this lapsed sense of, okay, what is my purpose? What, like, 
what am I sent here to do? Because, of course, his mother's dying. He just doesn't really believe in anything anymore. And then he gets this call and this chance encounter and sees, you know, all the evidence of the McNeil house and just is like, no, this this doesn't really... I'm sorry, but she's she needs to be checked to a mental asylum. She's not really... She's not possessed. But the idea of the death of Karis is the idea that he relents that, that he has to say, okay, if evil exists, then there must be a god. There must be a greater power. Otherwise, the, there's no justification for this. This can this thing cannot exist without what I've believed in my entire life. He regains his sense of faith through the existence of evil, through the existence of whatever's lashed onto Reagan. And what I love so much about this death is that it's one of the few sacrificial deaths I've ever seen in a movie that actually resonates on a deeply profound and a deeply kinetic level where you understand this person is doing something that is completely beside any of their self-interest, is completely beside what they want for themselves. This is to save another innocent life. And I feel like Karis's death is... A really large part of why The Exorcist is such an amazingly constructed movie. It's not just a simple horror tale. It's not just, oh, the spooks. It's not just, you know, the head spinning and all that. It actually has something to say. It has something to say specifically about faith. And it's not cynical in the way that it talks about faith, even though it's talking about something where someone has lapsed faith. And I feel like that's interesting because... There was an easy way to take this where it could have easily been, okay, this this movie is, you know, putting the kibosh on Catholicism or something like that, or it's or it's just proving everything. But no, it's actually treating it in a respectful way. And actually kind of in a beautiful way, where this person who has complete lapsed faith in God just says to himself, Okay, no doubt that he exists. I'm going to do something not only in his service, but at the service for someone who completely has nothing to do with this battle that's going on between good and evil. And it's also just, I mean, beyond the thematic elements, it's one of the most well shot deaths of all time. It's one of the best, one of the most powerful scenes, I think, in cinema, just because it, of that shot of him just, you know, coming out of the window, uh, landing down the steps. I mean, the the steps themselves have become a landmark in real life because of that scene. So it's, it's one of the best Chekhov's guns in like uh, horror history. As soon as you see those giant steep stairs, you figure something's going to have to happen on them at some point in the movie. Oh yeah, it's a wonderful payoff. Oh yeah, definitely. So yeah, that's that's definitely for me. That death is it's up there with one of the greatest scenes in general. It's just a culmination of a story arc, and it's it's simple but beautiful. That is one Very of the well best said. parts uh, for the yeah yeah no, but that's it's actually an amazing ending for the Exorcist, just because it'd be very easy to have a giant flashy ending. I mean, they did the build up to the Exorcist throughout that entire film, and like you said, the ending fight is essentially him sacrificing himself. It's not a big special effects battle between the two of them in some sort of weird netherworld. If it were done today, it'd be like a CGI mental battle. Like they were members of the X Men, so there is. Or, or it turned out like the sequel. Yeah. Yes. So there is something really powerful in its simplicity that really sells the whole thing. It's just a shame that he didn't really die until he was shot in the head in three. Yeah, I was <laughs> waiting that entire monologue to say that. 
Like, no, no, it, it, you're only half right. His soul died, but Brad Dourif was slipped in by the master. <laughs> Uh, we have to ruin all the good things. <laughs> Jokes. It's okay. The Legion cut exists now, or that didn't happen, so MP's in the clear. It still holds power. Technically it did, it's just he was originally played by Brad Dorif now. Legion cut's a weird movie. That, that leads to my choice. Brad Dourif's death at the end of Legion. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I should have done the Legion cut version of the Gemini Killer's death. Where Scott just walks in and shoots him in the head and the credits roll. I was honestly... <laughs> I was expecting your entire list to just end up being like a list of sad dog deaths in movies. Like Old Yeller, you know, Shiloh. It's, it's... Did Shiloh die? I don't know. It's it, Hilariously... Today, when I was doing research by watching these deaths on YouTube, just to remind myself that those characters died, to make myself feel better inside, um, Watch Mojo did a list of the top ten saddest animal deaths in movies. And the anger I felt that that was done for views, I almost wrote a letter. That is weirdly skeezy. And it's like a dog fucking laying on its side, sadly, on a table from a screenshot from a random movie. It's like, no. Yeah, I'm still mad that I had to read Where the Red Fern Grows in middle school. Like, that's that's emotional abuse. Come on. Stop killing animals and movies. Kill more children. There's a whole website actually out there that'll tell you, like, does the dog die? I think that's the name of the website. <laughs> the answer is always yes. It was very difficult, so my ex-girlfriend would not want to watch a movie if a dog died in it. And she started pointing out in every film that had a dog die in it. And I, I just realized, like, oh, shit, all of my movies are terrible. Like, every <laughs> horror movie has a dog dying at some point, and I didn't realize it until she got mad about it. Even, like, Jaws has a dog that dies. Well, I don't think it's a moral failing on behalf of the filmmakers. Like, that's not a political opinion. I, Steven Spielberg, declare that all dogs must die. By sharks. Though I will say that. It's a shortcut. If you know the bad guy kills a dog, then you know that guy's total shit. If Godzilla had eaten a dog, we wouldn't have an argument (laughs) today. I'm sure. I'm sure Godzilla in one of the previous films at least ate a dog. I have not watched all of them, so it's hard to say. The T Rex from Jurassic uh, World 2. I know this was the (laughs) 2. I just thought for a second, like, wait a minute, was that. Is that Emmert Godzilla? No, no, that was a T Rex. No, 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 no. That was. Yeah, Lost World 2 when he lands in L.A. or San Francisco, I can't remember. Which unwatchable Jurassic Park <laughs> sequel was it? There's so many now. <laughs> the Twitter. <laughs> Which Jurassic- we, do, we do actually have one vote on our Godzilla poll, and unfortunately it's Godzilla's a good guy. Yes! yes! That's one vote, it doesn't matter. We have a fourth. <laughs> that just means you've lost, Cody. You've lost before you start. Hey, hey. Do you know how politics work in America? You don't need a majority vote. God damn it. I can, I can gerrymander this shit. This is how Cody gets on the Supreme Court. Guys, yeah, it's just too close to American politics. <laughs> We're talking Twitter and gerrymandering votes to get to Godzilla, a good guy or not. That's the real death of this episode. The death of democracy. And Cody's... Godzilla. Small hands, smaller than mine. Couldn't even destroy all of Tokyo. Sad. Killed by Matthew Broderick. (laughs) Speaking of death, Mike, I believe you have a choice. Okay, so 
while my first one is a joke, there is actually a very good reason why I'm why I'm going for it. And this was weirdly, and I don't know why, when Cody pitched us this as an idea, this immediately popped in my head. Reinhardt from Blade 2? His step was kind of lame, though. It was. I was, well, it was. It was a funny moment in the film. It was. And my first nomination is Sergeant Sugar Watkins from Starship Troopers. Who is that character, you ask? I was going to have to. I didn't know if I should just pretend and go along with it, or if I should be like, Mike, what are you doing here, man? I'm oh, go yes, podcast. What are you doing podcast. Okay. Yes, yes. James, I know you haven't seen Starship Troopers. I have not, but I'm aware of the tone, so I know this is going to be amazing. Yes, MB? Is this Gary Busey? You know, Busey. you know my stance with most movies. I probably haven't. Cody? I have, actually. Uh, fun story. I had to leave like the <laughs> living room as a child when we were playing it because I was very phobic of bugs. I made it to the end when they killed the like the, the last bug, and I, I had to leave the room. I didn't realize that was the ending. As an adult, I went back and rewatched it, though. It's okay. So I, we I've both watched there. that as children inexplicably. Yes. Were, I, were you terrified of it, or did you pick up that was a comedy? No, I wasn't terrified of it. I was just confused why we were watching it as a family. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I watched it with my family, too. And they didn't turn it off after the first no, shit ton the shower of scene. Yeah. I was like, There's a very explicit shower scene, guys. There's a lot of nudity in that shower scene. My folks are just like, don't look at the TV. And I'm like, it's already awkward. They whispered to themselves and ignored me. I ended up leaving myself because I was uncomfortable that they weren't doing anything to stop it. <laughs> we had I incredibly have similar. Ex- we had incredibly similar experiences with this movie, Mike. <laughs> it's fucked up. Why? Why start your truth? <laughs> but we went in different paths. Like you apparently embraced it and liked the movie quite a bit. To me, it freaked me out as a kid. So it took me a long time to come back around. It's like the other Life Aquatic. <laughs> <laughs> like I enjoy it now because I realize it's you know it's it's very much a comedy and making fun of a lot of the. Things it, it's a it's a Paul Verhoeven movie, you know. It, it's it's his it's his style. I didn't realize that as a kid; it went over my head. I just thought it was scary bugs eating people's brains. Well, well, that does happen. That's, That's true. That's yeah. But uh, Sugar Watkins, you remember the um at the end? Is it, the is black... it Jake Busey? No, Jake Busey no. lives. Does he? Good for him. Excellent. Yay, Jake Busey. I miss him in movies. Uh, I do too. He was in a direct-to-video sequel to the Hitcher remake. Um. Ouch. He was recently in uh, the first season of From Dusk Till Dawn, the TV show. Cool. Yeah. Jake Busey, glad you're around, buddy. Hey, you're not dead. Um, Sugar, what, he's the black dude at the end with the nuke, the mini nuke. Remember, he gets slashed uh-huh. across the chest, and he does the huge, gigantic sacrifice. Give me the nuke. You take me! For my scene, my memory of that scene is explicitly the bug just raining the brains out of people. I was too terrified from that to move past it as a child. Have you seen it as an adult? As an adult, but yeah, I still get hooked on that scene. I'm like, this was the part where I stopped, and I'm proud of myself that I made it through and I stopped paying attention. I still don't know if they win. I just turned the movie off. Seriously, as a kid, my parents didn't tell me anything about it, so I'm like, what happened? They're like, whatever, you gotta watch the movie. I'm like, but how much was left? I couldn't take much more of the bug action. Watch that shower scene again and again and again. As you should. So it makes a man of you. Especially for all the naked men in that scene. Yeah, they're they're pretty equal on it. Oh yeah. 
Anyway, back to my nomination, Sugar yes. Watkins. This is why, I'm, besides the fact it's fucking hilarious, the dialogue in this scene is a thing of beauty because it is every over melodramatic sacrifice war movie piece of dialogue condensed into about 10 seconds. Like, you know that scene in Tropic Thunder? <laughs> Survive? Yes, it's pretty much that. He, he's, like, he willingly, happily declares how happy he is that he's going to kill some goddamn bugs and explodes historic <laughs> on the buggy road besides the fact i've been obsessed with the dialogue the performance of this scene what i love most about it is condensed within this one scene within that one quick exchange between him and Rico as he sacrifices himself and talks over the top and it's just so it's machismo and war movie it is exactly what Starship Troopers is encapsulated. It's the essence of the film in five seconds. Exactly. It. It's everything I didn't pick up on as like an eight. <laughs> you just took it as face value. Kill those fucking bugs. I was mad like bugs, man. That's terrible. I don't want to throw an asteroids at my house. <laughs> if you guys haven't seen Starship Troopers, that's literally the start of the plot. Like the bugs throw an asteroid at Earth in retaliation for some shit. <laughs> I'm joining the Starship Troopers. I gotta protect my house from asteroids. That's the plot and of the Penny. movie, man. That's that's like literally just besides the pennies, but that's literally the plot of the film. The great thing about it is there's always been that Starship Troopers is kind of designed as an in-universe propaganda film. Is how it works as satire for old propaganda war movies from back in the day, particularly like World War II movies. Yeah. There were half recruitment films more than anything else. It's it's glorious. Death is glorious in this fucking thing. Mm. And between it's the, the only way to be a citizen. <laughs> and between the the hammy as fuck dialogue, the performance of fucking Watkins, Rico's reaction, just how wonderful it is this character is dying. It's everything the film is achieving, and in one fucking scene. Like, one 15-second exchange. It's the entire film summed up. If you don't get what the movie is, just watch this scene. That's the movie. <laughs> Nicholas Winding Refn just bursts in. It's the movie! That's what fascinates me about people's reactions to Starship Troopers, because to this day, in 2017... Hardly anyone who talks about that seems to get that it's satire, and that really confuses me, because I've seen, like, two scenes from that movie, and it's Starship Troopers. Yeah, as an adult, it's very clear what they were doing, so it's 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 kind of hilarious that people don't get that, or didn't even get it at the time. It has, these, it has more of a satirical comedy tone than RoboCop does. Like, if you take out the commercials from RoboCop, you can kind yeah. of just watch it as a straight movie. Starship Troopers, even without those asides, because those asides are still in there from RoboCop. It's, I mean, it's, unless you're one of those people who just watch those old, like, uh, 40s and 50s war movies that is clearly just propaganda and just take it as face value. Well, that's Nation the thing. Zero. So many, so many people are aware of that, but they think Starship Troopers is made with that mindset unironically. 
It's just an homage to them. I think the original source novel was basically that way, if I'm remembering history correctly. That's that's probably that was required reading. That was required reading for Marines for decades. I'm not making that up. (laughs) We must fight the bugs. (sighs) God, I am so glad you went with that as your first choice because my choice is very, very similar, and even it comes from the same director, Mister Paul Vorhoven. My first Game Over award goes to Mister Kinney from the first ten minutes of RoboCop. <laughs> I, and this was the first thing that popped into your head. Like you had that. My first thing was Mr. Kinney. Well, we are far too fucking similar. Sometimes. Do you guys both have a tragic story of watching that as children being confused? <laughs> oh no, I wasn't allowed to watch RoboCop as a kid, Cody. I had good parents. I Ooh. I I was it it was bought for me and everything. I uh, once had to. Me and other kids were over, and for some reason, RoboCop was put on for us to distract us while the adults did stuff. With that shower scene. Exactly. Now, you say that that scene from Starship Troopers encapsulates the movie perfectly in its finale. The death of Mr. Kinney on that fucking model of Delta City is one of the greatest tone-setting scenes in movie history. Like, that tells you, within, what, the first ten minutes of the movie, exactly what you are in for with Paul Verhoeven's RoboCop. (laughs) Because that scene is so dead serious at first, with Dick Jones coming in and calling uh, the board meeting to present Ed 209, and Ed 209 is still, by mid-80s standards, a pretty damn good stop-motion effect. So... It kind of feels like you're just in, you know, an Arnold sci-fi movie right now. You don't quite get what the tone is. And then Dick Jones approaches Mr. Kinney. Mr. Kinney. Yes, sir. Would you come up and give his hand, please? Yes, sir. The greatest red shirt in movie history. <laughs> and tells him to point a gun at Ed 209. And the performance this guy gives. I have never seen... My boss is telling me to do this expressed on a person's face, quite like this actor. It's just him looking around to the other executives for approval. Like, huh? Huh? And then Ed 209 tells him he has 30 seconds to comply. And things immediately go wrong. And we get what can only be described as an orgy of squibs. Like, I just imagine Paul Verhoeven just shaking his fists like the mad doctor from Human Centipede, just off camera, like, <laughs> Yes! Yes! More blood! Blood and cocaine! <laughs> <laughs> and just, it just keeps cutting back to reaction shots of people being horrified that this dude is still dying. This is like 20 fucking seconds. (laughs) And he falls backwards onto the model of clean, pristine, gentrified Delta City, just smearing his blood all over it. I'm like, oh, God. And then Ed 09 keeps shooting him, even though he's dead. (laughs) I think it's the director's cut. He's dead. Stop. 
I think if the director's cut, this goes on even longer. Super longer, yeah. Just fucking buckets of blood <laughs> spraying all over everything. And then Ed stops, finally. Everyone rushes to him, and someone screams. Somebody want to call a goddamn paramedic? <laughs> <laughs> and in that moment, everything clicks together. Oh, RoboCop. <laughs> and it's also just amazing because RoboCop, in your mind, immediately opens with Murphy getting killed. You don't think of the preamble that leads into RoboCop actually being made. And that's such a key, vital part of the movie. Like the aspect of Dick Jones, the aspect of the business side of it of all the corporate politics that goes into just approving RoboCop as a thing, as a project that is going to go forward, as something that's just inherently wrong with Detroit, in that Omnicore has just come in and completely dehumanized everything just by being there, just by being a presence. Well, I love also just how clearly it's able to illustrate a very, very simple point. This is why you don't give machines guns, because machines are stupid. There's a great uh, punchline, extra punchline in that scene that most miss, and that we I don't, we didn't notice it until I think we did commentary for it with the uh, subtitles on, which is after he's dead, after all the kerfuffle, there's just in the background one of Ed209's programmers going, he didn't hear the gun drop. <laughs> he goes, Ed? cannot see a gun dropping out of a human hand because he's a fucking robot. He doesn't know what shapes are. Like That's a very confusing design flaw, but it's something that just wouldn't occur to people who are just trying to rush a project, a product out. And also that death to me creates a brilliant duality in the tone and tone of that movie and how it puts violence across, which is that is particularly the director's. The director's cut version gets this this across much better than the theatrical cut version, which is that scene is comedy, and then Murphy's death is played dead straight and horrifying. With about the same level of violence. If anything, Murphy's is a bit shorter. So he extends the comedy with like it's weird because like Verhoeven kind of hammers home the death of Mr. Kenny by extending that scene. Whereas with Murphy, you get a lot of cuts back to just like, uh, to Kurtwood Smith's character and his boys just kind of laughing maniacally as they boys. shoot him down. <laughs> exactly. But you get a lot of like quick cuts in between him, like shouting and screaming and having limbs just blown off and, you see his partner witness him just like there's just a lot that distracts you from the idea that he is dying, even though it's horrifying. And ultimately, eventually, it just falls. I mean, there's there's no real way to get around that because he isn't like Mr. Kenny. It's not like uh, Kurtwood Smith is a robot. He's a guy who's just like, OK, we're going to unload some rounds into him and then we're going to shoot him in the head. Well, it's just that interesting duality between cold, mechanical violence and violence born out of human cruelty. Yeah. Also, 
and has like a third amazing third punchline they're able to put in there. There's that amazing Star Wars Cantina moment where after the smoke clears and they start to carry the body out, Dick Jones just sits down with the CEO <laughs> and they just continue their meeting. Like, listen, this is a bug. We can get this ironed out. So much going on in that scene. <laughs> God bless you, Paul Verhoeven, patron saint. The Game Over Awards. <laughs> he has to win, right? Because he's been brought up twice already. He's, he's, been, he's getting a lifetime achievement award. Not until he dies. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's going to be covered in squibs when he goes, and his arms are going to be long. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you have no idea. In the coffin, them setting up the squibs, they bury him. You have no idea how tempted I was to make the second pick, Dick Jones, <laughs> as for his incredible <laughs> elongated arm. Oh! He transform and kill him. Thank God Robocop killed him. He was a monster from Big Trouble Little China the entire time. What what happened with that effect? I never understood why. Like, it was a perspective thing that just fucked up? I don't just know. Just a bad puppet. Or maybe there was a deleted scene where Jones was injecting himself with super serum and getting stretchy powers. No, 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 no. He, got, he also got hit with that same toxic waste that the other dude who was melting did. But... It was just in between shots, so Robocop like dosed him with it. Just his arms, like a uh, doll seam. Exactly. <laughs> this stupid podcast. I shouldn't have started with the Life Aquatic. I <laughs> realizing a tactical mistake on my part. Hey, you know what? Ours were jokes, but also, you know, they were serious. MB's I'm going to go back and. Can we re record mine? You can leave all the parts where we say Owen Wilson and just. Over the top of me saying Life Aquatic with Steve Zizzo, replace it with me saying Anaconda. <laughs> they are oddly similar movies. I, I, I can never disrespect an Anaconda reference. I <laughs> do commentary for Anaconda. I do. I, I just really recently rewatched it, and it was a lot more fun than I remember, but not a great movie. <laughs> so, Cody, your next pick, other than Anaconda. I was going to say, I feel like I should shuffle my around so I have a funny one next, but then I won't have a funny one to end with. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, I'm going to get all the serious shit out of the way, and then when you guys are out of funny ideas, maybe I can bring a funny one in. <laughs> Blade Runner! Roy Batty. I don't think you could have a finer soliloquy to close out a film. Just just that speech, it's classic. It's, it's like one of the best soliloquies, not only in sci-fi, but you're not going to get a better monologue in movies, period. The I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watch sea beams glittering in the dark near the Tannhauser gates. All those moments will be lost in time. Like tears in rain. Just, ah, it's perfect. Such a goddamn good scene, and it encapsulates everything that Batty's going through. This is essentially a four-year-old with super intelligence who wants something he can never have, and even if he was human, he could never have. He just wants more life, which is something we can all identify with. It's just, you want more, and you can't always get more. There's a, always a limit. So he has to take all of this emotional immaturity and try and somehow grasp the concept that he's going to die and he will lose all these memories all the things he experienced won't live on 
Except, by legacy, they kind of do. By saving Deckard, he essentially imparts in that guy a memory of himself. It's, it's just an incredibly beautiful ending, and the, the symbology of him sitting on that roof in the rain, holding a dove, which apparently was just something Rucker Hoyer did. Like, he just <laughs> decided, my character should have a dove in his hand, because he wants to be close to life. And Ridley Scott went, alright, sounds good. Just so just him up. holding onto that dove to release it at the last second as he dies, it's just perfect. Him clutching with that life and realizing it has to go. It's just one of the great turnarounds in movie history where that character that's been built up as the boogeyman for two hours, again, his last moments is just sad and beautiful. And you follow that up with one of the greatest third acts I've ever seen with the little cat and mouse game between Batty and Decker that gets so brutal and so violent, and you're just expecting a violent climax of that, and no, just two guys sit on a rooftop and realize the futility of life. And especially after just all the pain that Roy feels, because he just saw basically all of his friends and family murdered for existing. That was their crime. Well, they did do some murder to get off Mars, but neither here nor there. He took pleasure from the snake. <laughs> so he's going through all those emotions, and then at the end he has that realization. Like, it's it's maturity right there at that last second. He goes from childhood to adulthood when he realizes that he sees kinship in Deckard and that he's also kind of a slave in his own way to what he's doing. He doesn't necessarily want to go about killing people for a living. It's just something the system has kind of pushed him into, and his indifference has allowed him to think that was okay. And it's just an interesting lesson, because in the end, even though there's all sorts of violence happening in this movie, he decides that a little bit of grace is the better option. So instead of murdering the guy and teaching him a lesson for murdering his family, he shows him mercy. We'll see if they manage to fuck that up in Blade Runner 2049. But as far as endings go, man, I can't think of a better way to close out a film. It would be hilarious if the opening scene of 2049 is like Deckard telling Gosling, yeah, you didn't see it, but uh, I strangled Batty. <laughs> I bought him and die in my hands. He was like, no. And I was like, yes, this must be. So uh, I've been dealing with that. When you do think about it, Deckard's just been living in an abandoned hotel for all these years. So he didn't really take... Any lesson from Batty? You don't know what he's been getting up to in that hotel. He could be living large. That is true. That oh. is true. Val Kilmer yeah. out of a hotel for several years. <laughs> I would argue your point slightly, Mike, in the fact that Batty's essentially arguing for a type of freedom. True. You know, he was a slave, and that was that, that whole point. You know, now you know what it's like to live as a slave. Although he kind of did. Batty just awoke in that instinct in Deckard to realize that he's being controlled by outside forces. So if he leaves the system and lives in a casino... Yeah, I, I think he would have taken a lesson from that. But it's still just an abandoned casino. I don't allow jokes about movies I love. Hey, I, I'm making a joke about a movie that hasn't come out yet, not Blade Runner. No, that's fair enough, then. Go ahead. I mean, I made it. Good. All right, then. So, yeah. Anyway, it's my turn, right? <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Okay, for my next nomination for the Game Over Awards... This is not a particularly inventive choice. In fact, it's the first choice that my mind immediately went to. Probably at one point during the discussion for this episode, all of us thought of it at one point, and it's Jaws. But there's an interesting twist in here that I didn't actually tell any of you, where up until today, I was intent to talk about the death of Quint. It wasn't until I actually like thought about it where I realized... 
Quint's death is great and one of my favorite cinematic deaths of all time. Quint's death is not my favorite death in Jaws. And I'd be doing a disservice to not talk about my favorite death because as I started to think about it, this death is not just a great death and one of my personal favorites. This death may have actually been one of the most important in cinema. And that is the death of Chrissy Watkins in the opening scene of Jaws. The death that launched a franchise. I'm glad you didn't say the dog. But not only did it launch a franchise, it actually made more of a conscientious point, or rather an unintentional point, to cinema as a whole, where, yes, Chrissy Watkins dies in the opening scene of Jaws, and that's shocking, and it sets the tone for the entire movie, and it's a disturbing scene by itself because it leaves you ultimately to your own imagination for what is going on underneath. It's a complete claustrophobic experience on screen, and it's masterfully handled, it's beautifully shot, it's it's all of these different things working in tandem. But there's something else that nobody really talks about with this, which is the fact that when that scene came on in theaters, cinema changed forever. Cinema not only changed forever, horror movies were redefined as a concept. And what I mean by that is, like, Horror movies in the 50s and the 60s, going back even to the 30s with stuff like Frankenstein and Dracula and all the universal horror movies, they were considered like creature features and like kooky space monsters and murder movies were considered more mystery thrillers or something that was, you know, boxed in with a bunch of Vincent Price movies or considered something that was of its own niche and not really of horror. It wasn't considered something that would shock you. Like, the closest I would say that would come to that before Jaws was something like Frankenstein or Bride of Frankenstein, where the death in that movie is very eloquent, very beautiful, and has a ton of meaning. But the death of Chrissy Watkins in the beginning of Jaws, for me, makes it clear to cinema as a whole that you can officially get away with anything as long as you do it in the right way, as long as you do it in a way where you can make an impact, where you can actually make a statement to an audience and get an audience in your grasp in that opening moment, you have them. You have them for the entire film, you have them for the entire ride, and you can make that leap in other movies. You can have other movies that does something that brutal, that terrifying, and that gritty and grounded but at the same time just otherworldly and experimental like there are so many things you could say about that opening scene of jaws where chrissy is just you know flash like flailing about and thrashing through the water and she just has this moment like there's a moment in between the shark uh grabbing onto her where she just holds on to this bowie and like just wonders to yourself, like, what, what the hell, is, what, what's going on? And then before she even has time to comprehend that, she's dragged out even further. And then eventually, or she's just, she's under. Her screams just stop, and that's just, that's the end. And it's one of the most perfectly constructed sequences in film history. But it's also a, also a moment in film history that I feel like was a complete turning point. Like at no point was cinema the same way than after that scene in Jaws. Like, yeah, Jaws as a whole was a completely genre dis- 
defining movie and Jaws itself changed cinema. But I feel like that scene in particular is the moment you can tell this is when the world changed. This is when the view of cinema itself it can actually change. So that's the reason that I felt like ultimately that was a more important death than Quince, which I love. But that opening scene, it, it is unforgettable. Nobody who's seen Jaws, I mean, most people have seen Jaws, but nobody who's seen Jaws can ever forget that for as long as they live. Every, I think every year, uh, down in Texas, they show Jaws, like, out on the water on a projection screen. Could you imagine how great that would be, like, the first time someone saw Jaws, if that's where it was? Like, they see the whole Chrissy scene actually on the water at night? I wouldn't be able to do that. I, I, I bear... It'd be amazing. I, I think that'd be like, like my ideal day. Just, hey, you've never seen Jaws? Let's do this. My thing is just, it's if it was literally on the water, you'd have to crane your neck terribly. Uh, you'd be like in an inner tube, so you can kind of lay back. I think. No, I mean, I mean it depends on the it depends on where the screen is. Yeah, I still get irrational fears whenever I get into the pool. I can't imagine like actually being in. Oh. The- I had it backwards. I thought that they were on the beach and the movie was being projected onto the water. <laughs> that would be would be fascinating. I'm not imagine, saying that to imagine. be comedy stupid. I actually thought that. Oh, I, I was very confused. I want them to be able to do that. I want that to be a thing you could do. Just no, water funny. movies. If we imagine they did Jaws 3D and they did a 3D projection on the water. My God. That's the only way that movie would be watchable, apart from comedy. (laughs) The the technology must exist to be able to do this, right? Uh, Okay, okay. Sure, it's just a projector, right? Forget Google Smart Glass or whatever they're making now. Like, forget whatever, like, virtual reality thing. I want to see water, AquaVision, AquaVision technology. Imagine you can swim into the shark's mouth as it's gobbling people up. It's like I'm there. Oh, even better. What if you watched it underwater, looking up towards the surface, and it was projected upwards? So you were just surrounded by nothing but darkness, staring up towards the sky, towards the surface of the water, and there was Jaws projected on the water. Like you're, oh, you're in a and there was Quint, his beautiful Beautiful Robert Shaw face, <laughs> looking up at you like God, with just the hell of the deep below. Now, here's a question: like, for for this to work, like, would you be able to hear the movie? Like, would you be able to like have a yeah. transmission? They would okay. have speakers. Yeah, because because I love the idea of you being underwater and just hearing like, like, like you just can barely like like that underwater hearing that you have like where it's just like muffled out and and everything sounds terrifying and slightly comedic. You would have headphones. You would have headphones and have audio pumped in. I like the monster audio. <laughs> I do like that that concept. And how amazing would it be if you were killed by a shark during that? <laughs> <laughs> no one would believe you because <laughs> you'd be dead. So you would well, you'd, tell them. Like, well, not only that, I mean, but no if, one would believe you screaming shark during the movie. Yeah, right. Well, also, if that happens and they see like your your remains just coming out with like a bunch of blood, they just think that that was part of the attraction. 
I feel like this should get a special um, award for concept of death, which is just <laughs> imagine how amazing it would be to be dr- being dragged off into the darkness of the ocean after while you were sitting on the floor of the ocean looking up and watching Jaws and, and Quint's dying up above and you can't reach the safe haven of Quint's death as you're being oh, dragged off into darkness and the movie fades off and you die. As he's being torn apart by a shark, you're being torn apart by a shark. <laughs> Finally, we are warm. Unless you die during this the dinner more, scene, it should be awkward. This is more immersive than 3D. It's like I'm really here. Death D. Why do I feel like James Cameron would Death still be D. a proponent of this? Depends on how many frames per second you die in. Oh, totally. I am all for actually uh, killing the audience. I've been striving for that for the years. Uh, originally, the 3D glasses I proposed for Avatar were uh, laced with cyanide. <laughs> Studio shot down. You know, we That's could. what's taken that so long on Avatar 2, trying to find a way to murder the audience. Quite frankly, if you're, if you're going to the theaters to see Avatar 2, um, you deserve it. That was going to be my joke, so yeah. <laughs> so, we were giving the the silver statue of Hicks to that concept. <laughs> I decided halfway through this award show we need an award. So, it's being given, and the winner is Aquavision Death D. Which is too bad. It's supposed to be a memorial thing, but I guess he's lost it. <laughs> I mean, he he gets a fancier one. Yeah, it's something. <laughs> what do you mean? It's and he, he's the statue. He's the statue. It's I didn't agree to this. Are, the ones are based on him. It's him being pulled under by the. Uh, yeah, it's him. It's him. It's him. We should change it up each year. Like next year, it'll be him swinging a golf club as the predator disembowels him. Of course. Him in the middle of that twister. He survived that, but if he died in the statue, it would be okay. So, Mike, you're a movie. What happened? What happened to any It's your of turn. It's your turn. I, I'm just sorry. move on. Just move on. Okay. All right. My next pick is actually my favorite moment in cinema. I may have talked about this before. I don't know. You probably have talked about your favorite moment in cinema before, I assume. You'd think. My, fa- my, my pick is... The death of the Phantom in Lon Chaney's The Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> the... No, James, it's very sad. He was evil. It's not sad. <laughs> Isn't it supposed to be tragic? Didn't you see him as the Red Death? He was terrible. <laughs> I mean, he did kidnap women and force them to play music for him. But I mean, yeah, Cody, do we have to have a Twitter poll for this? <laughs> <laughs> Kidnapping women is wrong, Cody. Even I'll though agree with that. Butler was painted as if he was a tragic, romantic hero. He kidnapped yeah. her. He kidnapped Bulma. That's true. evil. Look how many goddamn abs he had. Come on, free singing lessons. Half his face was handsome. All <laughs> <laughs> of his face was handsome, Cody. Come on. You know, like, the underwater realty market in London, or wherever the fuck that took place, probably not uh, cheap to live there. That's probably got to be worth a pretty penny. Especially with all the death, the you know, theaters that spring up, because that's got to raise the property value. Are you trying to make the case that the Phantom of the Opera is a catch, Cody? Maybe. Why don't you post this on Reddit? <laughs> anyway, 
Cody. Sorry, sorry to ruin your favorite moment in the film. Mike. Being weird and creepy all of a sudden. Dude, no, most versions of the Phantom are supposed to be sympathetic. Okay. Well, before we, I get into this, let's break this down for a fucking second. <laughs> Lon Chaney's original Phantom, based on the fucking book, is not tragic. The, the, the Claude Rains version isn't good, so who cares? Moving on. It's tragic, though. It's tragic. Okay, he is kind of, he's tragic in that. Fine, I'll, I'll give you that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Fucking... But, it's a, but it is a terrible movie, so it's like I can't really give you that. Okay, because... it's, it's it's not it's not a great movie. He had a sweet lair, though. I think we can all agree on that. His lair was pretty, and I love yeah, his mask. Was. To be honest, it was. I like yeah. his mask. Okay, okay. So we can agree the movie shit, but there are some nice parts to it. The Phantom of the Paradise was evil as shit. <laughs> That's totally okay. okay. What about the uh, the Phantom of the Cineplex? The Phantom of the Megaplex was evil. He was a, he was a bus- he was, was shady he? businessman. Exactly. No, he kidnapped movie no. Mason. I remember part of this movie wrong. I thought he was misunderstood. No, 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 no. The only reason that he terrorized that entire cinema was because the dude who owned the cinema chain didn't remember his name. That's that's it. That's the reason that he endangered all those lives. That's the reason that he attempted murder. And he had superpowers, which always confused me. I'm remembering this movie totally wrong. Oh, man. Oh, so you are watching The Phantom of the Megaplex from the point of view of The Phantom. I must have, because I don't remember him being a bad guy in that movie. I thought it was like a misunderstanding kind of thing. I don't even know what to say right now. Robert England look- Phantom was evil. That one I'll get traveler. <laughs> the Phantom of the Opera, Eric, as he's called, was not good. Until Android Lloyd Webber made him good, and he still kidnapped women. That's not a good guy. I'm sorry, I got distracted because I looked up Phantom and the Megaplex on Wikipedia. <laughs> uh, so the bad guy, the bad guy, actually, this is probably why I thought he's a good guy because at the end he's not punished for what he did wrong. He's offered a partnership by the producer of Midnight Mayhem to make a movie based on his exploits. Phantom of the Megaplex, the Sean McGibbon story. So apparently, like, the movie rewards him for his actions. As an impressionable child, I probably thought, yeah, he must have been okay. <laughs> what a fucking yuppie you must have been as a child. Oh, he gets to make a movie after killing people or whatever? I don't think he tied them up with, like, tape. He, he, the intention was there. He harassed Mickey Rooney, who was going to drop dead from a heart attack at any moment. And you know how sad he... it is to harass Mickey Rooney? He's very small. He utilized a giant inflatable monster. <laughs> We have got to do a commentary for fans of the Megaplex. We really now. do. This, I think, this, I think this we need to, yeah, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I, I kind of want to watch We do our now. fucking film analysis for that one. Or Cody tries to tell us he's a good guy. Uh, I, I think the joke is they spell Sean McGibbon wrong, so maybe that's his punishment. Even when they do a movie on his life, it, they fuck it up. I probably didn't catch that subplex as a child. So anyway, back to Mike's heartfelt favorite movie moment of all time that you ruined. Yes. Go ahead, Mike. Anyway, so the Phantom, after an entire goddamn movie of being an evil piece of shit. (laughs) Would would you say more evil or less evil than Godzilla? (laughs) Well, he can play the piano and Godzilla's arms can't reach that, so I'm going to say less evil. Yes, okay, Godzilla's eviler than the fan of the opera. I'm talking of Gojira, of course. Now... Oh, God damn your technicalities. <laughs> they were both black and white. I have to go with the one closest to release. That makes sense. That makes sense. I'm glad I'm defeating you with logic. Anyway, 
So after a movie of the Phantom being a gigantic, disfigured piece of human garbage, he's being chased through the streets of France, of Paris. Paris, yes. By uh, various torch-wielding and pitchfork-carrying city dwellers, not really villagers. <laughs> and they chase him all across the city to, to, the, to a pier. He gets, he gets cornered. He's up against the water, both sides of the stairs, people are coming down. He reaches into his fancy coat, and he pulls out his hand, he pulls out a clenched fish, and, and everybody recoils. He looks like he's about to throw something at, at them. And he laughs maniacally, he looks at the crowd behind him, they all recoil and back up. He turns, he keeps threatening them, he keeps pointing at his hand, laughing at them. And he just starts laughing harder and harder as he just holds his clenched fist out to them, opens his hand up, and there's nothing in there. And he just starts laughing harder and harder as they all swarm him and grab him, just bash his fucking skull in and throw his corpse into the river. Besides the epicness of that death, there's a couple things that I love about this and make it my favorite moment in cinema. The big thing is, it's honestly, for me, the best monster death of all time. Like we, we see villagers fucking go after a monster constantly throughout various monster movies. And granted, Phantom's not really a monster movie, but technically he's still a monster. There's a reason that when people think of the Universal Monsters, they still throw Lon Chaney's Phantom in there with them. Mainly because he's horribly disfigured, but... Or if you have the Universal set, you unfortunately get the Claude Rains version. <sighs> anyway, the amount of malevolent menace that the Phantom gives off within that chase, within that scene, throughout that entire movie, but particularly that scene, that up until the end, he still inspires nothing but fear. And he's and something, there's something great whenever he does it versus a Frankenstein or a Wolfman or a Dracula or these supernatural, mighty creatures. Phantom's just a dude with and a skull. Unlike, and unlike any of those other guys... He's not tragic. <laughs> yeah, from the... Actually, I think I've realized exactly why you love this. He goes out in the dickish way, the most dickish way imaginable. <laughs> exactly. That's my other... That's the thing I love about it. There is so much character in that death. Up it's until the It's an indignant death. It's like he is able to get one last thing over on them. Like, it's just... It plays into, like, what the fuck is he going to throw at them that he's reached into his coat and pulled off? Like, he's playing up the fact that, to them, he's a fucking unstoppable monster. It's all theatrics to the Phantom. And the fact he's able to get that last laugh, he doesn't even care that he's going to be killed because he gets that last laugh. It doesn't matter to him in that moment. He, the Phantom in that scene comes across as one of the most malevolent movie monsters in cinematic history. And for that, that is my absolutely favorite death and favorite cinematic moment. There's so much going for the fans. I want to be him in that moment. When I die, I want to scare off French people. <laughs> Which will Specifically happen. Frenchmen. Also, just, just to kind of tag up on a little bit, I've seen, I haven't seen the full movie, but I've seen the scene in question that you're talking about, and one of the things that strikes me the most about that scene is 
I love how much energy Lon Chaney has to put into that because it's a silent movie. Yes. And his over-the-top, just maniacal laughter in that makeup. Like, it's such a bizarre sight to see because he's horribly disfigured, but he's laughing at everyone and jovial. And he's wearing that cape. And it, like it, the, it's really shadowy and moody because it's like at the middle of the night next to the water. And it, everything about it is just off and weird and off-kilter. And it just it makes for a really inspired, like, only just visual, but just, of that era, it's such a cool melding of everything that made silent film work. Oh, yeah. Lon Chaney as the Phantom in that moment is just fear. He's he's practically Satan in that moment. Like, it takes the entire city to take him down, and he's still able to get them back with a, a, a trick of the mind, essentially, by a bluff. He's able to almost get away, but just chooses not to because he just wants to play up that the fact that they're afraid. And that's his entire thing throughout the movie. He likes playing on people's fears and toying with them before they, he actually gets to them. Like Hannibal. A little bit. He does dress flamboyantly like Hannibal. He does. He does. And he has a nice hat. Ooh. What I'm saying is that M- Mads Mikkelsen should play the next friend on the opera. With no makeup. Can Mads sing? Does anyone know if Mads can sing? I'm, I'm sure he can sing. Can. I bet he can rap. We know he can rap. Mad money. Mad money. So, my second pick is also a great end of movie death. Well, that's uh, always stuck with me since first seeing it. God, I guess I was 11 years old when this came out. Fuck. <laughs> and that is the death of Boromir at the end of The Fellowship of the Ring. No. Uh, oh yes, our first Sean Bean entry into the series. <laughs> it's like, surprisingly any, long. Like really, the award should be shaped like him. <laughs> He's still alive. He doesn't get that. I feel like Boromir. I, I feel like Sean Bean is like the Martin Scorsese or like the Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> he dies once a year, but will never actually win. Oh, I thought you were going to say he'll never actually die because that's how his immortality works. <laughs> it's just like Leo. <laughs> but uh, this, this scene has a tremendous amount of setup throughout the film. Really, every scene with Boromir in Fellowship of the Ring is setting up his death. Everything from uh, his inferiority complex about not feeling as good of Aragorn, who's the real king of Gondor, or where you know, he's just the steward to the throne, the son of the steward to the throne, so another notch down, to uh, his coveting of the ring, to the sense of innate heroism he has that he never really gets a chance to do anything with because everyone else is a better hero than he is. Damn you, Aragorn! And in the end, after trying to kill Frodo and being shot down pretty unceremoniously by orcs. He's just left lying alone in the woods until Aragorn and the other friends that he'd shunned came to see him. And there's this amazing framing going on during this scene where it's almost like a comic book panel. You have Aragorn in the foreground and Boromir dead center in close-up in the background, with the arrow sticking out of his chest, separating the two of them, and 
we get this beautiful, not only just a closing of his character arc in that film, but an amazing setup for the third film in the series, where Aragorn forgives him and tells him that from this moment on, he's dedicating himself to making sure Boromir's city will not fall. I do not know what strength is in my blood, but I swear to you, I will not let the White City fall. A promise he gets to live up to in Return of the King. And there's a beautiful passing of the torch there where Boromir sees that, okay, Aragorn actually let Frodo go. He wasn't corrupted by the promise of power. He's a secure male. (laughs) And Sean Bean perfectly pulls off this kind of uh, shrugging of the shoulders of, yeah, you're the hero, aren't you? Fuck. (laughs) And... As uh, he passes away, we see a truly brilliant use of color correction. Along with O Brother, Where Art Thou? Uh, Fellowship of the Ring was the movie that really brought color correction in as not just uh, something done out of necessity, but as a legitimate filmmaking tool. And you don't see it used better than this, where the exact moment that Boromir dies, they lower his skin tone just a couple of shades, which is something you don't notice unless you really slow down the film and watch it, because it's done very subtly. Yeah, that's something I never thought was a thing. But here's the thing. Cody, you know the exact second Boromir dies. Without being told that they do that, you can... Anyone who watches that movie knows the second Boromir is no longer alive. Not from him making a moaning noise or his eyes rolling back in his head, because he's entirely stationary during that scene. Mm -hmm. Just from that subtle bit of color correction that you don't even notice, you feel a character's soul leave his body. And that is truly fucking masterful filmmaking. I was always amazed. Uh, They kind of did the same thing in uh, the two towers scene, you know, where the king is transforming back to his former self. Oh, yeah. That slow transition of skin. To, I mean, it's not more obvious there because you're supposed to see the difference, but I loved how gradual that was, like his beard disappearing and all that. Weta did an amazing job on those kind of transformations. That's something oh. I'll have to pay attention to next time because I've never noticed that it's it, that kind of subtle color shading to indicate death. Oh, yeah. the It pains me that color correction is used so crudely now because... The entire point of that as a storytelling tool is to be subtle about it. Or we could go the opposite way. Everything is orange. <laughs> I was going to say, one of my favorite moments in the history of, com- of commentary is Fran Walsh just shitting on Boromir's death in the book. <laughs> if you read Boromir's death, it's terrible. Like, it happens at the beginning... Of the two towers instead of the end of the fellowship. Yeah, I was going to say, it's split up. Like, it's kind of implied, isn't it, at the end of the fellowship, and they conclude it in the start of the two towers? Yeah, the Boromir just gets shot and then fucks off because Tolkien didn't like that character. <laughs> and the, at the beginning of the two towers, Aragorn just runs up to him says, Where's Frodo? Where? And then he dies. And then Boromir just storms off because he didn't tell him where Frodo is. <laughs> You see that again with the death of Gandalf in that movie, where that is such an emotional moment. And it's drained 
as like milked for such uh deserved drama. And you go back and kind of look at that death in the book and no, he just dies and then the characters run away. And then it cuts to a month later and Frodo says, Hey, well you know what was sad when Gandalf died that time? <laughs> Did we have a Gandalf fellow with us before? Because Tolkien was there to describe geography, not feelings. <laughs> he wanted you to know a lot about language. I always like that because anyone who adapts things always runs the risk of, you know, pissing off like the built-in fan base. And they were very, very careful of that in Lord of the Rings. But I just love how that one little thing slipped out. Like, yeah, that was a bad scene. <laughs> I, I, mean, I don't know uh, what he was uh, thinking. Uh, Tolkien fans were going to be mad no matter what, I think. I, they're not even that happy with the film adaption, are they? Like hardcore fans? Uh, th- those are the people who were, like you said, were never going to be happy with anything. Yeah. I, f- I feel like the Lord of the Ring fan base, like the non-crazy people have had enough time to warm up to the movies. I think everybody's kind of an irritated at the Hobbit, so that doesn't really count. So, top Sean Bean, Cody. Well, I saved a good one for last. I mean, it doesn't quite have the same redemptive flow, but... Please tell, me it's, please tell me it's Sean Bean from the opening of Equilibrium. <laughs> That'd be fantastic. Can I change mine? I already feel like I'm doing a poor man version of what MB was doing, but it would be hilarious. final just, pick... I was going to say, it would be hilarious if we just counted down the top ten Sean Bean deaths next year. <laughs> On WatchMojo.com. So for my final entry, I'm going with Deep Blue Sea. Russell Franklin, played by Samuel L. Jackson. Whose hat is like a shark fin? Deepest, bluest. His hat is like a shark fin. Do we on the show actually read out the lyrics to that song? I don't think ever. That, that... Or is that when we weren't recording? I think that was when we weren't recording. Ah, that's if a you shame, want because... to right now, we have. Yeah. To. Okay. Hold on. Deepest, bluest, LL Cool J lyrics. <laughs> it's someone's guess to what those lyrics are. The music video for everyone at home uh, for LL Cool J's Deepest Bluest is hilarious. It's LL Cool J synchronized dancing kind of in a pool while trying to get you interested in Deep Blue Sea, the movie about genetically engineered sharks. Well, he is a shark at one point. Yeah, yeah. So, chorus. I said, empty your mind. Be formless, shapeless, like water. Skill to learn. I've been practicing it for many years. Deepest, bluest, my hat is like a shark's fin. Deepest, bluest, my hat is like a shark's fin. Man-made terror, hungry jaws of death. Y'all don't cross my depths. I'll pause your breaths. I cause you to sink down 40,000 leagues, bleeding to death with no arms and short sleeves. My world's deep blue. Killers gotta eat too. Looking for human flesh to rip my teeth through. Other fish in the sea, but barracudas ain't equal to a half-human predator created by a needle. Get black eyes, baby. They stare while you sleep. When your titanic sinks, I'm the one you gone meet. Hearing terrified screams, they surround my team. All you see is trails of blood. Even God won't intervene. Nightmares of darkness, my appetite is heartless. Even if we related, you eliminated regardless. In the deep blue, underwater wells, half man, half shark, my jaws don't fall. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
killers swarmed the beast, swallowed them in flame, they switched my DNA, tripped me into Cool J. I can't fight the feeling I'm born to kill prey. To survive an attack, there's only one way. Battle to the death, that's how sharks play. Weapons left behind, we duelin' with the mind. You blind, crippled, or crazy, you're real easy to find. Struggling to flow with hemorrhages in your throat. Get in the lap dance while I smash through your boat. Eat your whole fam. Nothing left but a right hand. Cling to a rail. Escape. Attempts fail. You'll never make it home. Tear your flesh off your bone. Walking in undercurrents is a dangerous zone. I'm talking death out of moment's notice. You wasn't focused. Me and my crew strike like some underwater locusts. Uh, uh, take it deeper. Uh, uh, take it deeper. These waters are waist level, the hallways flooded. Lost your scuba gear, the killer's cold-blooded. His name's LL, you don't really want it. I ate your ancestors, the ocean is haunted. I'm closing in because I'm supposed to win. How could cold... How, how the cold steel feel when it froze your chin? Should have stayed on dry land, stroke while you can. Cause now you under pressure in the land of the damned. Abandoned pirate ships, eels and sods come. Fish that glow in the dark, the Titanic's hub, underwater storms. Your blood is so warm, my life vest is off, and that turns me on. Killer for centuries, the god of the deep. In the next millennium, I'm still gonna creep. Sand under my belly, ocean over my head. Through the light in the shadows, you become the living dead. Deepest, bluest, my hat is like a shark's fin. Deepest, bluest, my hat is like a shark's fin. Yeah, DBS. So, MB, your next choice. So, Deepest Bluest, the, before we move on. The single worst set of lyrics I have ever heard in my life. I think we hit maximum white there, did we? Yeah, yeah, oh, sure. Okay. Yeah, I should be allowed to do that ever again. I got confused halfway through because I thought he was saying part of a team. Like, he got confused. Like, he was referring to his movie character, but he was also referring to himself as the monster. It got confusing. Like, he was both ends of the side, so I don't know if was he trying to eat himself. My hat is like a shark's fin. You're acting like the song makes sense in the first place. That's true. I did get lost at that part. But aren't we all LL Cool J? And is he not in everything? Anyway, you were talking about Samuel L. Jackson. Samuel L. Jackson, for people who have not seen Deep Lucy, I've just ruined the best part of the movie for you. Samuel L. Jackson is just brutally murdered, like, maybe halfway through the film, not even that. Like, he's one of the earlier deaths in the film, and it's a surprise. Like, he's giving a rousing speech to his crew about how they're going to make it through this problem because he's made it through bad shit in his past. So we're not going to fight anymore. We're going to pull together, and we're going to find a way to get out of here. And it's all about teamwork, and they're going to work together, and they're going to start on these problems, and then a shark pops up out of, like, a water vault and just drags him underneath the ground and rips him in half. First... We're going to seal off this And bar none, it's one of the funniest movie deaths I think I've ever seen. Just, I, I laugh thinking about it, let alone actually having seen it. Here's my thing. Could you imagine if that was actually how Samuel L. Jackson, the actor, went out? In real life, there'd be no better way. Like, just killed by a CGI shark in real life. <laughs> just smashed him up in the middle of a scene, like... That's yeah. That's how I want Samuel Jackson to go. Just making Man, that'd a, be an honored death. Just yelling at the top of his lungs at Thomas Jane, who's just horrified. <laughs> so uh, the last time I watched this movie, I had the pleasure of doing so with a group of friends. Some of them who had not seen the movie, so they didn't know what to expect. 
we were doing a drinking game version of Deep Blue Sea. I found rules on drinkingcinema.com. I'll just plug those guys because I, I actually really enjoy their drinking rules. We had them. I didn't actually hear what she said, so I couldn't react to the joke. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, so the, the rules for the drinking game were every time there's shark vision, you see a shark fin, uh, someone's laying down some science talk or jargon, uh, Thomas Jane becomes a shark whisperer, someone blurts out a shark fact, Thomas Jane falls down, uh, the Reverend LL Cool J talks about shuffing or God, uh, you see the shark bite something, or any time you see LL Cool J's bird, you drink. But so you, you would be dead. See, oh, we were, yeah, we were pretty plastered. Uh, also, when Samuel Jackson dies, you either take a shot or finish your drink. And so they didn't know this was coming, but I basically forced everyone to get a new drink. Like, sit down, shut up, something important is about to happen. And they're all like, what's going to happen? And I'm like, just, just watch. And it was, it was just, it was beautiful. It's, it's such a fun moment to watch the crowd. Oh. And we've just ruined it for anyone who might have not seen Deep Blue Sea, so I'm sorry. So just drag some other people look, look, that look. haven't seen it. Look, take it from me. There is a ton about that movie that more than makes up. Like, if you are spoiled by this and you, you feel like you've seen the scene, one, we haven't done it enough justice, and two, there's plenty about that movie that you can laugh about just as hard, if not harder. It's I very mean, true. there's an entire subplot about LL Cool J's bird. Yeah, that I mean, gets a lot of screen come time. on. It, I would highly recommend this for any party, though. Uh, also, and I know I've explained to you guys death several times, the the game, not the concept of... <laughs> I was about to say, so when did you explain death to us? That's what this whole podcast oh. has been. <laughs> yeah, I was just trying to break it to you gently. Guys, I'm uh, dying. So Bill Paxton's in a better place right now, not life. Uh, it's a little thing we call death. But no, uh, there's a game my friends and I made up called Death. Determine every action that happens. So what you do is you find a movie, like Deep Blue Sea, where there's going to be a monster killing people on a fairly regular basis, and then you place bets on everything that happens in the film. The The main bet, though, is trying to determine the order of how people die. And you can wager whatever you want, maybe points, maybe actual money, uh, maybe drinks, and just make up bets throughout the movie. Like, I bet the first shark to die is killed with dynamite, and if that happens to be true... You can assign drinks to other people based on how they bet against you. Or if you're like, I think Samuel Jackson will be the first person to die, you also assign a time to his death. So you could say, I think he's going to die 20 minutes in. So if he dies 21 minutes in, you're shit out of luck because your time bet was wrong. Basically, you can bet on anything you want throughout the movie. It's just an excuse to haggle and gamble with your friends. But it's a lot of fun to try and pick up the stereotypes the film lays down to see how people die, which order. And there's a ton. Just I can't even count how many really terrible Jaws knockoff films there are. And now there's even, like, splices into different things. Like, there's Jurassic Shark, Sharktopus, Sharknado. There's, like, four movies in that series already. My new favorite is Damn Sharks! With an exclamation point. Uh, I think there's one called Sharkalanche. I I saw it at Walmart not too long ago, about an avalanche that holds land sharks. Uh, There's also Sand Sharks. There's there's so many terrible shark movies. It's fantastic. Just pick one on Netflix that you've never seen before. Have your friends sit down. Try and lay out a list for each person how you think they're going to die, which order. Try and pick when the first death happens, and then just bet from there. You'll have fun. And let's not forget the most important one, which is Mega Shark versus Crocosaurus. Uh, Yes. Personally, I would would recommend the movie Bait if you're looking for a slightly better killer shark movie, but that's just me. So that's that's my tip to everyone. Uh, get your friends together, find the shittiest shark movie you can, and get drunk. That's always your tip. Yeah. 
But it's convenient because we were talking about death, and I have a game that's specifically called Death. It just works so well. I've been wanting us to do death on the podcast for a while. Nice. I feel like it would be a good commentary. We would, the trick we is finding... Yeah, that's the trick. You have to find something that everyone hasn't seen before, but still has a reputation for being something dumb enough where you can make it work. We can always make dumb work. It's true. We specialize. That's the box office pulled motto. That's how this podcast works. So I guess it's time for my final one. And for this one, I actually, um, once again, I had another pick for the longest time. I was actually going to do uh, the death of Tyler Durden in Fight Club, because I felt like that was an interesting subversion of the idea of a movie death, where an idea is killed more than an actual person, because if, if spoilers if you haven't seen Fight Club, but Tyler Durden is the other personality of the narrator, played by Edward Norton, and he is violently killed with a gunshot to the face by Edward Norton sticking a gun inside of his own mouth. What? I know, I know. No, I'm never going to watch Fight Club. No, Tyler was real. I'm sorry, Mike. I'm sorry. Tyler was real, and that movie was about the glory of masculinity. I'm sorry. (laughs) But... In place of this was actually a a death that I'm so glad I remembered because Fight Club is one of the greatest David Venture movies ever made. I mean, it's one of the top three, if not top two, if not just the top one, uh, depending on who you ask. And I feel like this death that I'm going to choose now, this death is one of the most important story-wise, and also just one of the most well-crafted story-wise, because at its offset, you think it's the actual death of the character who dies in it. What I'm talking about is who is actually killed within the scene, who is actually killed within the context, who is killed emotionally at their core. I'm talking about the death, that's going to sound weird, the death of Detective Mills at the end of Seven. Now, for those who've seen Seven, you know that it's, you know, it's a movie about Detective Mills as played by Brad Pitt and Detective Somerset played by Morgan Freeman investigating a series of murders based on the Seven Deadly Sins. Seven Deadly Sins being, of course, pride, greed, lust, envy, gluttony, wrath, and sloth. And John Doe, who is played by Kevin Spacey, is the perpetrator of these murders and you know, throughout the entire movie, it's a mystery as to why he's conducting these murders, why he's doing these horrible things, why he goes to such great lengths to feed a man to death or, or glue a phone to a woman's hand and glue sleeping pills into her other hand and cut off her nose whenever she has to make a choice between calling for help or ending her suffering. Like, there's just this sick, demented mindset that's psychologically going through and reverberating through the screen through every crime scene and even through Mills and Somerset's, you know, various hardships. You know, Somerset is trying to uh, retire from the force and Mills is trying to make it onto the force and take over. And the two are just kind of constantly at odds with different, but honestly, equally valid approaches to a lot of different situations. What's interesting about this death is that, yes, it is a very shocking, one of the greatest plot twists in movie history, but it's also a death that I feel 
a lot of people misinterpret because one, it's I mean, I feel like yeah, this is mostly my own interpretation, and I'm not I'm not gonna lie there. I'm I'm copying to the fact that yeah, this is my own twist on it. But my thing is that John Doe, by killing Mills's wife and severing her head, California, stay away from here. Stay away from here now. Don't, don't, don't come in here. John Doe has the upper hand. And fulfilling the last parts of it, envy and wrath, he is not actually, he's not the one to die. Like, John Doe himself doesn't matter. It doesn't, he doesn't register. He's a plot device. He's a guy who's there to move the plot along about these two men who are ultimately broken down by a society that is becoming more and more hard to recognize. I mean, both of them fight against it in different ways. Like, Somerset wants to move away because he can't handle it anymore. Mills doesn't want to accept that it's there. And John Doe, with one chilling act of... I took a souvenir. Absolute psychopathic... Her pretty head. Randomness by killing off Mills' wife, just visiting his home, wanting to experience the envy that he feels of living a normal life and not getting to fulfill that. He kills Mills emotionally at his core and as a man by just not only killing his wife, but killing his unborn child. Oh, what's in the box? What's in the fucking box? And it's all in Brad Pitt's performance in that scene because you see him looking towards Somerset, just wondering, like, he's in denial. He doesn't realize what's going on. He can't comprehend what's going on. There's just nothing about that scene for him that goes well. Like, there's no way that this character will function beyond this movie. That's the end of his story, is he had to suffer the worst imaginable tragedy. And the only way out for him, the only silver lining he gets, is that he gets to gun down the man who wanted him, wanted him to do it. Become wrath. I mean, it's such a supremely dark and disturbing ending, but at the same time, it fits the film so well. It completely capitalizes on the tone of the movie throughout. It completely subverts the idea of what a mystery thriller even is, because, you know, this entire time, you're you're wanting answers for why John Doe is like the way he is. None of that matters. It, it doesn't come up, it, it doesn't really come into play. Like, yeah, there are vague answers as to why John Doe does what he does, but ultimately, all John is doing is just taking you along for the final part, for the final act of it, and he becomes a martyr. It's brilliant and haunting and so utterly horrifying that I can't help but just single it out as probably one of the great, if not probably the greatest death for my mind, because I feel like the entire movie is based on, is based upon that death happening. It, the entire movie thrives on it. It builds to it. It doesn't work without it. It's just brilliant. It's nothing more can be said, really. That was very well said. I can honestly say I've never really thought of the ending of Seven that way, but you make a very compelling argument. 
I was just really tempted as soon as you said like, and nothing more needs to be said to be like, and that's the end of the show. And then we leave before you guys to you. <laughs> Good. And it's over. And just I like did. real death. It's surprising. Unless you light yourself on fire, right, Cody? That would also be surprising. I, I actually never interpreted that the ending that way either. But it actually tracks arguably as the intended ending. I mean, besides the obvious fact that anybody marked with uh, the sins John Doe has marked them with dies, Wrath, by its definition, is death, in that it's all-consumable grief and vengeance, where you die and are replaced with Wrath. It's, it's why Wrath is often, uh, as a concept, an embodiment of a being of some kind. So that tracks very much as a, yeah, everything Mills was is killed by John Doe. And by him completing John Doe's work by killing Envy, he has become Wrath and in turn died as he was. And and leading into that, you also see one final shot of Mills in the back of the police car as he's being driven away towards the end of the film. And Brad Pitt's performance in this movie is excellent, but... That particular moment, too, is just so amazingly well done because you just see the hollowness in him. It's not underacting. It's not like it's not like he's doing a bad job. It's just he is completely emotionally exhausted and broken. He's nothing. He can't even you, you get the sense that he's not even there. Like he probably spends like post the movie. He probably spends the rest of his life in a mental asylum. And that's just so powerful because Fincher directs it in such an amazingly tense way. And also, I've got to really give credit to Howard Shore's score during that right. entire movie. Oh, yeah. Because, oh, my God, that is that has to be one of the most brooding scores to a movie I think I've ever heard. And, uh, oh, that Seven is just it's a master class in mystery thriller and just Oh, I can't, I can't say enough good things about it. I just wish they would have made that sequel where Morgan Freeman had psychic powers. It makes you feel any better. Apparently Ridley Scott still wants to do a sequel to Gladiator. I was just about to bring that up. I was just about to bring that up. How would that even work? I feel like we willed that with our um, What Could Have Been episode. So years ago, after Gladiator first came out, uh, a script was commissioned. Nick Cave, of all people, wrote a script where... Maximus comes back and essentially has to go out and kill like other. It's like a God of War kind of story. And he goes through different ages, always as a God of War. I believe at the end of that script, he like ended up on the war council for the United States, like in the war room. Yeah, he's in the Pentagon. We covered it in our uh, what could have been episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, he it's uh, he goes through the afterlife and there's gods. He has to stop the Christian God from coming into power. This was this close to being made. And it might be again. You can only hope. I mean, technically, no one saw Exodus Gods and Kings, so for all we know, that's what that is. I have seen that movie, so I can vouch for it. It's oh. all right. Wow, and that was the greatest death of them all. <laughs> Ooh, boy. Is your death, Mike, uh, the prospects of ex Exodus Gods and Kings? Yes. Wouldn't it be amazing, though, if my death was Maximus and Gladiator. <laughs> that would That'd be a amazing. great segue. 
it would be. And well, Instead, we, we we actually may have kind of segue. There, there's something supernatural going on in this episode. Anyway, my final pick. I don't have a lot to say about this one because I think it kind of speaks for itself. It's it's not my original choice. My original choice was going to be the end of Sanjuro. Yeah, that's solid. Which I could speak uh, a lot on, but I decided to go with something. You know, that's that's very serious. This one, you know, it's it's not a joke death or anything. It has a lot to it, it has a lot to do with the history of cinema, and it may be the most epic, important death in the history of cinema. And this is my mic drop. My final nomination is King Kong. Oh, no. It wasn't the airplanes. It was beauty killed the beast. Oh, wow, classic. Are you going to tell me King Kong's not fucking tragic? <laughs> Shut up, Cody. That's not an answer. It is when dealing with you. And it, it, and I just want to say, it could be either one. Obviously, the one from the... Uh, and I'm not getting the 70s movie. The one from the Jackson movie... <laughs> is obviously the superior death of Kong. There were people crying during my showing of that. My favorite was still the guy pretending he wasn't crying. He was just, like, trying to check his phone, wiping his tears away so his girlfriend wouldn't catch him. I'm not affected by the monkey. That was essentially what was going on. You might have said words similar to that. But he's so beautiful. <laughs> I, too, love Naomi Watts that much. Damn you, Jack Black. Damn you to hell. <laughs> And then Jack Black walks out, and it's kind of funny again, because it's Jack Black. And then Adrian Brody walks out, and you're like, oh, God, get away. Where are the Predators? Anyway. <laughs> man, man is the Predators. Get your way out of this, Houdini. <laughs> why do I imagine you saying that before you shoot him in the chest with a 12-gauge shotgun, and he falls out a window into a bed of Mike? spikes like the no. end of Mortal Kombat? <laughs> I, love the, I like the implication Adrian Brody knows me. <laughs> <laughs> I like the impl- no, the further implication that Mike and Adrian Brody are bitter rivals. <laughs> Possibly magicians. It's, like, it's the prestige, but, like, Mike is born <laughs> and Adrian Brody is... Well, let's face it, he's still Houdini. The red oh. and the bad color. The bad color. As he dies. Well, Cody did recently send Mike the DVD to the Adrian Brody Houdini miniseries. As a weird kindness joke. And Mike had to make room for it on his bookshelf. Uh, uh, it's the extended uh, edition, too. I got you a bad gift. <laughs> and for some reason, I've kept it. I don't know why. What I love right, is yeah. it still cost Cody money to ship it. That's true. And to buy it in the first place. <laughs> Please tell me you bought that just to show Mike one day. No, I bought it because I was like, oh, my parents said this is fun. This was a good movie. And I, I was not. I didn't even watch the second half. Never trust anyone's parents. Yeah. And now I have it. Especially <laughs> parents who at a young age showed you a movie that set off your phobia of bugs. They like took me to Jumanji, too, and just like didn't care when I left the theater. They love me, but I don't think they have any room for my bullshit when it comes to being afraid of bugs and such. And then they showed you the life aquatic and felt nothing. They also didn't like the corpse bride. Well, I can go to hell. I'm sorry. I know the <laughs> oh, parents. Oh, oh, jeez, my parents. 
And now Cody is Batman. No. That was the most tame reaction becoming Batman I think you could have. Oh, no, my parents. Well, I guess I'm doing this now. Is that sensible uh, Batman again? Yes. I feel, I feel like oh, that's like the fifth, re- the fifth reboot down. Uh, yes, Father, I will become a bat. Well, it's just, I like the idea of someone becoming Batman after their parents are mildly insulted in conversation. That is the ultimate rich man's parents' death. <laughs> and he slaps them with a the glove. Well, now I have to beat the shit out of, st- of street muggers now. I don't know, Alfred. Bats are kind of spooky, so I figured that could be all right. You know, they're a nocturnal thing. I'm going to go out at night. Bats. Mainly because my job is during the day, you know. I love sensible Batman. <laughs> all right, everyone. Cool. I'm making a left turn in the Batmobile. Beep. Beep. Well, Alfred, I was going to invest in a new Batmobile, but I also realized I need to maintain my 401k investment so I have a healthy retirement fund. So I downsized, and now it would be a bat cycle. The Joker's there in handcuffs. Oh, that's really prudent. <laughs> I would have personally gone for a Roth account, because that's pre-tax. <laughs> you really are crazy. <laughs> well, I mean, it only allows for a certain percentage of your income to go into those. So it makes sense to diversify your retirement fund. You want to probably do a majority in a 401k, especially because most companies... Will I financially that I match do a podcast for the sensible Batman. <laughs> well, uh, match a certain percentage of your income. So really, it's free money you have to take advantage of. And if they happen to offer a Roth account, that's amazing. Uh, most places don't do don't do that. You'll just get a four hundred one. But yeah, take advantage of that, and then through your own financial consultant, try and set up a Roth account. Like you can probably do fifty five hundred of that a year easy. That's like a four hundred dollar a month payment. That's doable. And by the time you retire, if you start now, it's going to be just pay off huge. Box Office Pulp recommends sensible investments. Ooh, money. Money, anyway, money. Anyway, King Kong, really good choice. Actually, one of the... I believe, yeah. One of the all-time great classic deaths in movie history. It's death just... Right? It's, <laughs> it's simple, but at the same time, it's just... I mean, that's really kind of the essence of cinema in itself, is just how simplistic it actually is, because it's just... Who's the real monster, man or beast? The real monster is apparently the fan of the opera. Oh, yes. He was pulling the strings all along. (laughs) (laughs) There's a Peter Jackson ending to the movie that he shot in black and white as a special deleted scene. And it's King Kong. He falls to the ground, but he's not dead yet. And then he holds up his hand and a fist and everyone's freaking out like, he's got a grenade, a giant monkey grenade. (laughs) And then he opens his hand and it's just the crushed corpse of Andero and just, just, just blood. And then oh, even, the crowd just beats him to death. They just all run up with, like, tire irons and monkey wrenches to beat him to death. Oh, even sadder, even sadder. It's a tiny, tiny, normal-sized banana. <laughs> no! no! He was it... hungry. And then it's used as a, as a war propaganda film, and we've combined all of my choices. Into... Oh, the grail. And the, Yes, the grail. <laughs> you chose wisely. Okay. This all leads us... <laughs> Just move on. <laughs> James over there, this all leads us to the real answer. <laughs> we have to end this podcast sometime. <laughs> no. Don't leave me. This leads us to our final award to give out. The Lifetime Achievement Award for Dying in Cinema. The winner committed the Herculean task of beating out Sean Bean 
in what is a very death-filled career. But looking at this list and at the other movies uh, you guys were looking at in preparation, I eventually came to a very clear answer. There's only there's only one place this award can go. My final award goes to Thomas and Martha Wayne. Except for Hamlet has died over and over and over again in film as many times as the Waynes. We are up to six dead Waynes and counting at this point. Uh, uh, Batman uh, uh. 89, Batman Forever, Batman Begins, Dawn of Justice, Batman Year One, and Justice League The Flashpoint Paradox. Jesus I feel like it should be more. Christ. Oh, it's more if you count the shows. Can I just say, like, just... I, it was a good... It's a damn good choice. It's a, it's a damn good choice. I do want to say, real quick, as an aside, uh, the third of our choices for James and I were secrets to everyone. <laughs> and while mine was King Kong, I was hoping, beyond hope, James's was Godzilla. <laughs> wow well, how, how perfect uh, if only I had the in, in my heart of hearts I had told this group to make their selections known several days before the episode so we didn't step each, on each other's toes and I was just hoping hoping they were going to pull out the same answer and both of them were going to be like Jack from Titanic and I could have just yelled at them for the next 20 minutes on the show and it would have been beautiful but instead they actually didn't manage to fuck up so good work, gentlemen. <laughs> Thanks, Cody, for that weird wait, backhanded wait, comment. Wait a, wait a minute. Wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Mike, James, you defeated Cody. <laughs> no, because my end goal was for them to get it right in the first place. God damn it. Okay, I, I, how about this? What if we combine James and I's last mic drop choices? King Kong falls from the top of a building. It's on the waves. No. <laughs> the alternate universe Batman, where he doesn't become Batman, he becomes Ape Man. No, like, he's still Batman, but he only kills giant apes. The high drama. And the great thing is, there is plenty of giant apes in the DC universe. I know, he's, his arch enemy is Gorilla Grodd. Wait, does this mean that instead of seeing Zorro, they went to see... King Kong on display. <laughs> yes, this would be exactly what happened. That creature. <laughs> this would be an amazing Elseworlds. Oh I'm, I'm thinking it would. 1930s Batman. And I'm just imagining his suit isn't even the Batman suit. It's just a tuxedo, like on the day his father died. <laughs> so he's like a fully grown adult. Yes, I guess this would be the 50s. And and because King Kong is dead, there's no one to battle Godzilla when he shows up. To destroy Gotham City, because this is the universe I'm going with now. So, okay. so Ape Batman, because that's what he's going to be, has to don a giant ape mech to battle Godzilla. Batman versus Godzilla. Yes. At last. Also, 
This gives him the perfect opportunity to sing my favorite anti-ape song. I hate every ape I see. Yes, yes, yes. A to chimpanzee. I think he sung this in the last episode, too. I probably have. Probably yeah. every episode. Also, extra caveat to this. You'll never make a monkey out of me, Mike. <laughs> what else gets crushed under King Kong when he crushes the Waynes? The pavement. That, too. The hands and feet of young Bruce Wayne. <laughs> yes! Yes! Which must be replaced with tridents. This is a deep-cut reference for anyone who hasn't listened to the show since our early days. Okay, audience. You know what? I'm not even going to tell them to listen to the Dark Knight Rises episodes. Audience, we make a joke in the Dark Knight Rises episodes about Trident Man. That's all you need to know. It's Trident Man. It is as horrifying as it sounds. Good choice, James. Yeah. Also, also, just just out of complete curiosity, because there's really nothing to go in-depth about the death of the Wayans, because we've seen it so many freaking times. James, what is your personal favorite version of that? Uh, probably Batman Begins. I'd say, yeah. I'd say I'd actually agree with you on that. I wish they would get more extreme with the deaths of the Waynes as time went on. So instead oh, of just being shot horrible. in the face... Yeah, like, uh, eventually Joe Chilla just has a fucking bazooka, or like a blender. <laughs> this is for you, Wayne! <laughs> oh! It's a fucking chain. And Martha's saw. pearls... <laughs> the pearls, instead of just bouncing off the ground gently, just fly at the audience in 3D. No, an explosion. Chill rips off the jewels and then just shoves them down Martha's throat. <laughs> she chokes on pearls! And then she, like, then he, like, disembowels her, and the pearls go splattering out still. Like, it just goes in... Like, it's Paul Verhoeven behind the camera. More blood! More blood! Ed 209 steps out and shoots the Waynes to death for 15 fucking minutes. It's Ed 209 in, like, a, a sleazy coat. I <laughs> oh got that robot was destitute, Bruce, you can't blame him. <laughs> OCP put him out of work after that incident in the boardroom. So, like, the trial scene from Batman Begins still happens where Ed 209 is on the stand. Your Honor... I had no idea what I was doing. I was only programmed to kill. And then Bruce becomes Robot Batman and rages war against robots. How come they never cover this in Whatever Happened to the Cape Crusader? Uh, well, that's the sequel. Also, can we just combine all of ours, like Bill Murray shows up to mourn the Waynes? <laughs> and then, like, meanwhile, like, Detective Mills goes insane, so he takes John Doe out to, like, that field. It's like, what does it all mean, man? What does it all mean? And then, in the middle of the ocean, Mills tosses John Doe, and he's eaten by a shark. Possessed by... Which shark? Yes! Yes! Possessed by... <laughs> and it's, of course, it's a shark from Deep Blue Sea. Exactly. But was his hat like a shark's fin before he went down? Well, that well that plays. That's that's over the ending credits of this uh, fictional movie that we made of all of our deaths. Our deaths? You make it sound like we're personally in the movie. What are you talking about, Cody? We're not recording a podcast right now. You died on the way over here. This is hell. So the true recipient of the Game Over Award is Cody for being actually dead. I did it, guys. I did it. On that note, 
Game over, man. Game over. Get the hell out of here. Results of the Godzilla Twitter poll are in, folks. And in a not at all shocking twist, Godzilla is a hero to all, by and large. Suck it, Cody. He's the king of all monsters and of all orphans, as Godzilla donates all the proceeds from his latest film to build orphanages for all the displaced baby orphans sieged by the kaiju in Pacific Rim. Because that film did not make enough money to cover such expenditures. If you'd like to tell Cody yourself that Godzilla is a force for good and not at all a sack of shit, follow us on Twitter at BoxOfficePulp. We're also on Facebook at BoxOfficePulpPodcast. Remember to subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher, or both. And if you dig the show, be sure to rate us at your favorite podcast listening station. And as always, our website is BoxOfficePulp.blogspot.com. And check out all the other fine podcasts on the Pulp Podcast Network at pulppodcastnetwork.wordpress.com. As for the first annual Game Over Awards, we all belong dead. I said, empty your mind. Be formless, shapeless, like water. It's not an easy skill to learn. I've been practicing it for many years. Deepest, bluest, my hat is like a shark's fin. Deepest, bluest, my hat is like a shark's fin. Man-made terror, hungry jaws of death. Y'all don't cross my depths. I'll pause your breaths. I cause you to sink down... 40,000 leagues, bleeding to death with no arms and short sleeves. My world's deep blue, killers gotta eat too, looking for human flesh to rip my teeth through. Other fish in the sea, but barracudas ain't equal to a half-human predator created by a needle. Get black eyes, baby, they stare while you sleep. When your titanic sinks, I'm the one you gone meet. Hearing terrified screams, they surround my team. All you see is trails of blood. Even God won't intervene. Nightmares of darkness, my appetite is heartless. Even if we related, you eliminated regardless. In the deep blue, underwater wells, half man, half shark, my jaws don't fall. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Killers sworn to beast, swallowed them in flame. They switched my DNA, tripped me into cool J. I can't fight the feeling I'm born to kill prey. To survive an attack, there's only one way. Battle to the death, that's how sharks play. Weapons left behind, we duelin' with the mind. You blind, crippled, or crazy, you're real easy to find. Struggling to flow with hemorrhages in your throat. Get in the lap dance while I smash through your boat. Eat your whole fam, nothing left but a right hand. Cling to a rail, escape, attempts fail. You'll never make it home, tear your flesh off your bone. Walking in undercurrents is a dangerous zone. I'm talking death out of moment's notice. You wasn't focused. Me and my crew strike like some underwater locusts. Uh, uh, take it deeper. Uh, uh, take it deeper. These waters are waist level, the hallways flooded. Lost your scuba gear, the killer's cold-blooded. His name's LL, you don't really want it. I ate your ancestors, the ocean is haunted. I'm closing in because I'm supposed to win. How could scolds... 
how how the cold steel feel when it froze your chin. Should have stayed on dry land, stroke while you can, cause now you under pressure in the land of the damned. Abandoned pirate ships, eels and sods come. Fish that glow in the dark, the Titanic's hub, underwater storms, your blood is so warm my life vest is off, and that turns me on. Killer for centuries, the god of the deep, in the next millennium I'm still gonna creep. Sand under my belly, ocean over my head, through the light in the shadows, you become the living dead. Deepest, bluest, my hat is like a shark's fin. Deepest, bluest, my hat is like a shark's fin. Yeah, DBS. This is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show.